And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. So here on Startup Hustle, we talk a lot about building tech companies, building startups, being entrepreneurs. But today we're going to get into the specifics of how to build an enterprise software company. And with that, it's probably a good time to mention that not all software companies are created the same. They don't all have the same purpose. They don't have the same kind of products. But enterprise, big. We like big things here on Startup Hustle. I do have a subject matter expert with me to help define what enterprise software even means and to help have a conversation with me about how to build an enterprise software company. And before I introduce them, I want to let you know that this episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. SVB has been supporting innovative founders, companies, and investors with targeted financial services and expertise for over 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank is built for what's next. Learn more at svb.com. There's a link in the show notes if you can't remember svb.com. With me today, I've got Chris Gladwin. Chris is the CEO of Oceant, or Oceant, I should say, uh, straight out of Chicago and on Startup Hustle's top Chicago startups list. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt, it's great to be here, and uh, it's nice to be talking about enterprise software because it's not uh, it's not something that happens a lot in the Midwest, but it, uh, it, True. it, happens, it happens when it happens. True. And uh, well, I like to say that no one tells the story better than the CEOs and founders. And let's start with your backstory, uh, maybe as an entrepreneur. I know you've been involved in more than just this startup. So let's let, let's set the table for the listeners. Yeah, so my quick backstory is I, I went to MIT, and then my first job out of college, I worked at a big uh, aerospace company, uh, Martin, Mar Martin Marietta, now Lockheed Martin, and I was a professional customer of enterprise IT products, including enterprise software products, and so I was one of those people that evaluated spreadsheets and picked you know, the new standard product, which, by the way, was Excel. When I remember when Excel came out way back when. But I was basically a professional customer. And then I switched to the vendor side. That's when I moved to Chicago in 1991 to work for Zenith Data Systems, which at the time was the largest portable PC maker in the world. And one quarter was the largest PC maker in the world back, back in the day. And so I learned how to make enterprise computer products. Um, and then I, I had a spin out of that, uh, which was a company called Cruise Technologies that made wireless uh, thin clients. And... Um, we ran that for a while and then sold parts of that off to Motorola and NEC and then started a digital music company called Music Now, which in the pre-iTunes era was the, the dominant business to business supplier of, dig of digital music services. We sold that to Circuit City in 2004 and then I started a company called Cleversafe, um, which became the dominant provider of the largest data storage systems in the world. And... Um, at the time that IBM bought it in 2015, we had 100% market share for uh, any vendor supplied. Uh, and what I'm excluding there is home-built systems like YouTube, we didn't make. Um, but any time a vendor supplied a massive storage system at 100 petabytes and above, that was us. So you use it every day. Everyone uses it every day. Um, you may not know it, but behind the scenes, you know where your files go or your maps come from or your, you know, videos come from often that's uh, one of the systems we built which was the software to do all that uh, and then after IBM purchased that I started Ocean in uh, 2016. Three three things one I'm old enough to remember music now and awesome. I worked in the music industry I worked in the music and live events industry for almost 15 years Where and I wrote a book on the subject 
uh, I worked for Roland. I'm sure you've heard of nice. Roland. Yeah, so of it's the world's yeah. largest maker of electronic musical instruments. And yeah. uh, they kind of di invented digital music when, when their founder gave MIDI yeah. to the world. Yeah, and yeah. they gave, literally gave it away, which was, he knew he was giving it away too. He wanted it to be accessible and open, very innovative company. Uh, so I'm also old enough to remember Circuit City. Uh, for all you kids out there now so, so uh chris and i are, are are dating ourselves when it comes to that and uh you know what i said three things but i'm going to cut it off at two because i want to talk more about ocean and by the way that's spelled o-c-i-e-n-t.com and there is a link in the show notes for that because that's not as easy to remember to spell as SVB. So let's start with what, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that you were on the, we identified OCEAN as um, one of Chicago's top startups. We talked a little bit about it in our episode about that, but we only got to spend a couple minutes on each one. And you guys are into data, data analytics and all that, but give us a little bit more of a background about the problem you solve at OCEAN. And then we'll get into enterprise software and building a building a company around that? Well, one of the things I, I've learned how to do in building enterprise software companies is how to listen. Um, and the way that uh, OCN got started was because I was listening. At CleverSafe, the prior company, our focus was providing the software for the largest data storage systems in the world. And so we knew every single one of the two or 300 largest bit storing organizations in the world. I mean, you know, there's only so many ways you could have hundred petabytes and we knew every single one of them. And so for 10 years, we got to know these organizations and the decision makers there and, and some of them became customers and some of them didn't, but we knew them all. And some of them starting even before we officially formed OCEAN started to tell us that they had a problem they couldn't solve. Um, and that was not only to store data at massive and accelerating scale, but to analyze data at this massive and accelerating scale. And they couldn't, they, and this was like, you know, one of the trillion dollar tech companies, you know, the biggest part of the U.S. government, the, you know, big telcos, like the really enormous enterprises, they couldn't find a way to analyze their, mat, their largest data sets. And when that group tells you they can't find something, you know, that's gold. I mean, they, you know, they're telling you there is a multi-billion dollar, multi-tens of billions of dollars opportunity to solve that problem. And that is simply put how uh, OCN got started. Once I heard that the fourth time, I'm like, whoa, you know, this is, this is an enormous opportunity. I need to like take a lot of notes and uh, that that directly led to the the creation of Ocean is, and now here we are five years later. I mean, because it, you know, enterprise software is interesting because all the ideas that enterprises want to buy that take less than tens of, if not hundreds of person years of work to create, all those ideas are done. Um, those are long gone. You're not going to find one of those. Uh, it's not very likely. So so now what you're looking at in enterprise software are these ideas that take a person century of work or more to bring to market. And that's certainly been true at Ocean. So we're crossing about 200 person years or two person centuries of work. And we're just now, you know, bringing our products to, to deployment. And that, you know, five years later, here we are. So that's, that's how Ocean got started. And what we do is help organizations that have the largest data sets in the world that need complex analysis of those data sets. Uh, that's what we provide them. So I love the fact that we started this with listening because I'm often found on this show and other places saying that great entrepreneurs listen for the echo, meaning like that resounding ask or that resounding cry for help or whatever, because the world does very much tell you oh, yeah. what solutions are needed. Now, as as a multi-time successful founder, how do you, you know, and once again, we're going to get into the enterprise side of this and building the software company, but every good software company, in fact, any good business solves a problem, but not all problems have the same, quote, value when you yeah. solve them or monetizable. So how, in your experience, how do you determine if something is, if a solution is solvable and sellable? and monetizable on an enterprise level? Well, the sellable part 
of that, and mon which is monetizable, really does come down to if if you've got enterprises, you know, the decision makers at enterprises articulating they have a problem that they want to solve, it's sellable. I mean, because that is the customer. If they're saying, "I want this," like that's it. Um, and it, you know, there is some some craft to. Uh, well, one, getting a trusted relationship where they will tell you they have an unmet need. I mean, that you, you got to have a trusted relationship to get to that point. And then also there is some craft to like learning how to get them to tell you the detail you need. Um, just saying I've got, you know, like in enterprise software, the, the problems are typically extraordinarily complex. And so you're going to need a high bandwidth conversation that is going to occur over a long period of time, over many hours, over many years of them giving you this information to guide you on what it is they need. Um, and then there's the, can it be solved part? And in, in, in Ocean's case, that was really significant because analysis of just massive data sets uh, is, is a problem that's been known in both kind of the market side you know, and as well as the technology side. So for example, in, in the database world, you know, there's just been certain unsolved problems. Like if you have two, you know, if you have a trillion row table and a trillion row table and you want to join those, um, you know, basically you need to create an intermediate structure that's a trillion on one side and a trillion on the other side. It's just mind bogglingly large and that's never been solved. And so that's, that's one of the problems we knew we would have to solve you know, there's other certain, you know, difficult problems in there, like count distincts at this scale are just insanely difficult. And there had been attempts in the past that I knew of to solve this kind of analysis at scale where literally, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars had been spent and failed. Um, so I knew it was hard. Um, and I, you know, there, there was just some difficulty to it, but, but what was changing, and this is also another good example of listening was at the same time, Intel in particular and Samsung and others were, were telling, you know, their future customers that not only were there going to be bigger, faster, cheaper components, which had been true in hardware forever, you know, hard drives got bigger, CPUs got faster, all that stuff. But there, for the first time, there was actually going to be a new building block which was a solid state uh, drive. And, and, and it was just fundamentally different than a spinning disk and different in ways that we thought could solve this problem. And, and the reason those prior attempts had failed is they didn't have that building block. They were just trying to solve it with spinning disk and DRAM. And now all of a sudden, you know, there's this whole new thing and its characteristics in terms of like the number of 4K random IOPS per second they could deliver and the number of 4K random IOPS per second per dollar those things could deliver was orders of magnitude above what had been previously possible. And the requirements that we were hearing from customers were orders of magnitude above what was the state of the art. So, so we thought maybe this is possible. So we, we did spend a number of years with a large team analyzing, is this now possible? Um, so that, that was in, in this case, we had to do an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of effort to see if it was possible. And it turns out it was. So in that first step, we've got requirement gathering and data analyst analysis and trying to figure out if you can even do it. Now, it, during that, pro and we'll, we'll kind of as we move into the, the second phase is, which I think is fair to say, is beginning to design the solution, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever it is that we're going to do. Now, you might have blown a lot of people's minds. Now, once again, um, uh, Chris went to MIT um, and I'm going to assume you're smarter than me by a whole lot because of that. So some of the things that he was talking about were related to the hardware and processors and things that can actually get the job done uh, when it comes to simple computation. Now, for a company that's doing the kind of enterprise stuff that you're doing, are you so uh, inventors are designing what their invention five to 10 to maybe even 20 years in the future. They're using things like Moore's law to try to, uh, and I'll let you explain what some of that is. But when it comes to building a true enterprise and a big, big, big solution and company, are you, are you personally trying to work five and 10 years ahead in the product roadmap, knowing that the cutting edge stuff you want to do isn't even possible now? Cause that's, 
part of what I was hearing there is like, shit, we might not even be able to do it because there might not be machines that can do it, but we know there will be. So does that factor into the design? It, simply yes. And it's and you, you don't often do that. Um, be, because of the success I had had at Cleversafe, you know, it sold for over a billion dollars. I, I think there was a willingness on the part of the rest of the team, you know, who, who really were the really smart people that figured this out, as well as uh, the investment community to allow OSEANT to take one of those bets, which was we're going to start building something now. And we, you know, we did a lot of this research in like 2014, 2015, which is, you know, seven plus, you know, seven years ago, six years ago. And then we began the commercial, the, the design and the de- development five years ago, which is an extraordinarily long period of time, knowing that, you know, here we are sitting here now saying we've put 200 person years in. Well, you know what? The, the the cost of 200 person years, and these are not like the B League of engineers. I mean, these are, you're going to design a brand new architecture from scratch, which is going to, you know, provide the most, you know, largest scale analysis of the biggest data sets in the world. The kind of people that do that design work and deployment work are expensive, you know, very expensive. So you want 200 person years of that. So now you're going to take tens of millions of dollars um, for a project that's going to take at least five years, you know, to see the first dollar of revenue, I, I can, you know, having raised venture capital a few times, like you might think venture capital is excited about that idea. They're not, you know, the idea that it's like that much money, that much risk, that much time, forget it. And the only way I, we were able to do it is really because we had done something similar at CleverSafe and pulled it off. Um, you're not uh, short of having that. And it wasn't just me, like a whole bunch of the team members. And then we had, had been a part of CleverSafe. And then we hired all these other people who had built database designs in the past. Um, you don't normally get the chance to do one of those. And, and fortunately, we were able to. But, but it, was, it was a journey we knew, like, you know, we, we've now put $65 million in and we're just now getting into revenue, like real production revenue. Like, and, and we actually... This, this was the best case scenario. I, I can tell you, it's not common that you know, you're going to see, you know, $65 million of venture investment with a five-year horizon. It may or may not work. Uh, we, we were just very fortunate that we were given a chance to go do that. In, in my book, Million Dollar Bedroom, I, uh, I impressed the importance of knowing your path to revenue. And for those of you that have read and or maybe just listened, uh, much <laughs> $65 million is usually not an acceptable, uh, path to revenue. And then the, yeah, the, the yeah. great thing about it is once you, in a company like us, once we start getting revenue, now we need even more money. Um, yeah. you know, now we need a hundred million dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars to scale this thing up. Now that's actually easier to raise because you're, you're at the point where you're seeing the numbers, you know, the revenue going, but um, yeah, that's not normal, and I, and, I, and we all recognize that. But we also saw that as a competitive uh, opportunity. Like, we're not sh- we're not sure anyone else is going to get funded to run this playbook in this market space. May- maybe there'll be one or two, but that'll be it. You're not going to see them stack up. Um, we we haven't seen one yet, so you know, and it takes five years to get here, so we may not see that. But that turns out, so it's like a double-edged sword. Even, you know, because it's so hard to get that kind of financing, we know that maybe no one else will get it, maybe just one or two. And so that actually means it's much, if you can pull it off, then you're in a much better space. Now, you you recently raised a $40 million round. Is that part of the 65 that you're talking about? Okay. And, and one now let's tap the brakes for a second, because I don't want people to totally be discouraged from building enterprise software, thinking that they have need $65 million to get to revenue. I mean, overall, like the, look, the steps are the same. They're just at different scales. And, you know, we talked about uh, requirement gathering and data analysis. Now we're designing a product. Now, not, not, there's a lot of very attainable enterprise solutions out there. But one of the things that you said, I took a couple notes here is uh, I'm a believer of this that, well, there's a lot of solutions that have already been provided. And 
Do you think that the future of enterprise software is and building companies around it is only gonna is really only huge on those? I mean, is there room for the little solution in there too? Because enterprise usually dictates big and sizable. And there's been a lot of people that have a 20 year head start on a lot of these things. So like, I, I mean, realistically, I don't, I, let me put it this way. The vast majority of the opportunity in enterprise software is for large. There, there's not a lot of small, like I said earlier, if you could think of an idea, you know, there were a bunch of ideas that people thought of that in the enterprise software space, you know, over the decades that, you know, you could kind of ride in a weekend, you know, with a bunch of smart people, all those ideas are done. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I can't think of any that are left. You know, if, I went back the other day and looked at uh, the version of DOS, the disk operating system that IBM wrote. Um, I'm sorry, that Microsoft wrote uh, back in the 70s, you know, that was the one that really people started to use 70s, 80s. And it was like, 20k of source code. Um, I mean, you could you could if you knew software, you could literally read it in like five hours, like every single line. And they wrote it in you know like a few person months, right? like and and yet that had applicability, you know, to create you know to create Microsoft. And at the time, it was you know became the dominant operating system for PCs, like. Something that took that small amount of work that had that big of impact, uh, I can't think of an idea like that that's been brought to market in the last ten years. Yeah, the you know so now we've got a design. We know what we want to do now. On to implementation and coding. So, where do you start there? Where do we start? So, a lot of what we there were really two things that we had to deal with um, and they were scale and speed. And they're, you know, they're obviously very related. Um, so fortunately having done CleverSafe, we knew a lot about scale. And so basically how do you build everything so that everything is clustered? Uh, everything, just about everything is stateless. Cause you want to just like whatever layer in your architecture, if you need twice as many, you know, twice as much performance, you had twice as many nodes and, and then, you know, other ideas like, you know, all large scale things are um, built with highly parallelized, multiple uh, low cost elements. So everything, you know, the way you use DRAM, the way you use PCI lanes, the way you use CPU cores, the way we use disks, the way like everything, you're going to have a thousand of them in, or more. And so like we knew from a, you know, scale part of you, that architecture. Oh, and, and by the way, the other aspect of that architecture is for systems like that, like everything always has something broken in it. If you have 10,000 things, you know, like, you know, all these systems never, you can't turn them off. They, they're going to run forever. You're going to upgrade in place and on and on. And they have 10,000 components. Something's always broken. So they have to be like super reliable while the underlying things are breaking. And so we knew all that, those aspects of it. Um, were, you know, how you're going to get to scale. It wasn't like, you know, some hardware company somewhere had this like super CPU, like one of those is all we need. Like, no, that's th those days are decades ago. Um, so we knew what the architecture looked like for scale. And then, you know, the same thing was going to be in true with performance. We knew we were going to have to like parallelize at a level never before. And, and that was one of the, so one of the first things we had to figure out was, could we reuse existing engines and designs to do what we needed to do? And we, we decided no. Um, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the new databases you see in the market today, the, the engine they actually use is, is a, you know, there's like three engines that everyone's using. And we decided we're going to have to write our own engine. And a lot of that, I mean, this is, I think, is interesting technically. Um, so spinning disks for 50 years were the way that anything that was big stored data and spinning disks are like record players. They have a needle, which is the read, write head. You know, they have a record player with you know, record, which is the platter. They have songs, which are tracks. And, and, and the, the problem they have is 
how fast they can randomly read things is a physical phenomenon. They have to literally move the read right head into the right track. The platter has to spin around to the beginning of the track, and then they can begin reading or writing. And that's been tens of milliseconds of time forever. So on a Moore's law adjusted basis, they've been getting slower and slower. And they also really just do one thing at a time. Once they get that head, you know, read right head in the track, they can suck or spit an accelerating amount of bits, but they're just, so they're really good at sequential and not good at random. Um, solid state drives are pretty much the opposite and that to get maximum performance out of those, you want hundreds and soon it'll be thousands of parallel tasks in flight per drive. And if you've got 10 of those drives in a U and 10 U's in a cluster and multiple clusters, you might have a million or a hundred thousand parallel tasks. That is so completely different from the way that things used to work uh, that we had, we, you know, the first thing we had to kind of understand all that and realize this means we're going to have to write our whole new database engine, um, you know, from scratch. And that, that was a big, big thing. So that was the first thing was figuring out like our approach to everything, you know, design wise. Um, and then, you know, once you, once we had that figured out, you know, then, then you just start like dividing up the work and, building out the team and building out the processes and putting in the 200 person years of work that it takes. So a couple things. Well, one, for those that don't know what Moore's law is, and I'll just kind of read this in it, it, it verbatim, it's the observation that the number of transistors in a dense integrated circuit doubles about every two years, meaning you're going to see doubled capacity. And uh, usually with that, the, definitely the past stuff becomes cheaper and these are the kind of uh, these are the kind of estimates that inventors and innovators will use to figure out what they can do later because uh, the most complex things require a lot of thought you don't just dream them up and then three months later have it done the second thing that i want to remind everyone of is that this episode of startup hustles brought to you by silicon valley bank svb has been supporting innovative founders companies and investors with targeted financial services and expertise for over 35 years svb.com i believe you bank there i bank there and i think i'm i think in chicago i'm pro i'm pretty sure i'm i've been using silicon valley bank longer than anyone going back to my, every one of my startups going back all the way to Cruise Technologies in the 90s. I have been uh, banking at Silicon Valley Bank and they've done some extraordinary things over the years with us. Yeah, I, I, I like, uh, I love all the conversations we've had and we've had some, uh, plenty of folks from SVB on the show and they think unlike traditional banks. And mm -hmm. for that, I really appreciate them, Chris, because I don't think banks understand software companies or enterprise software companies or any of it. Cause if you go to the bank and you're like, Hey, I need a loan. And they're like, you don't have revenue, but you've spent $50 million. Yeah. They right. kind of, they, they don't, they don't get it. So, all right. So implementation and coding. And I mean, really what, uh, what I'm hearing there is if, well, if you want to build something unique, you want to build something forward thinking, you might have to throw out the bathwater and the baby along the way, just meaning like, hey, a new school of thought, new paradigm shift, all that requires a fresh start sometimes. And yeah. uh, uh, now I would imagine on the flip side of that, well, that can either go well or it won't. And I, you can also like, that's always a big debate. And I love the, the, the question. I think this is important for people to remember is, can, can I reuse stuff that I have or stuff that's out there or any of that, because you should, if you can or could, but there could very well be limiting factors associated with that. When it comes to just general enterprise tech companies, like one of the things with some that have had their, their heels dug into the sand for a while is they have kind of rolling technical debt and things that are going forward, you know, how, how do, if you're an existing company and you're really trying to grow and get to it, how important is it to consider a, a, a redo, a rewrite, a, a re-engineer of it as compared to just kind of running the motor you have? Well, one, one rule of thumb that I've used in terms of bringing something new to market is if you bring something new, whether it's a new architecture or a new interface from or a new company, if what you're doing is... 30% better, 50% better, no one's going to care. 
it's not going to be worth it to deal with the newness to get that much of a bump because typically with Moore's law, well, I'll just wait a year and I'll get the bump anyway. Um, so if you're going to bring something new, meaning, and this is when you think about, do I rewrite versus use what's there? If the rewrite doesn't make it not 30 to 50% better, but like three to five times better, then, then you shouldn't rewrite. It needs to be like that level of breakthrough um, because there's a lot of overhead and you know negative associated with new. Because like if you're going to write new architecture, it's going to take you forever. It's going to cost a ton of money. And it's going to be some work for your customer to deal with, even if it's better. Like we've had some situations at Ocean where we've brought in, you know, our stuff, depending, you know, mileage always varies a lot in the database world, but it's not unusual for us to be 10 times faster or in some cases a thousand times faster. Um, you, you put something in somebody's workflow that's 10 times faster, you're going to break the other sides of it. You know, the, the thing that's receiving your output, you know, maybe it's a rewarding system. You can break it <laughs> if you like give it a hundred times as much information or do it a hundred times faster. Um, and even the inflows aren't necessarily expecting you to like, you know, pull data in that fast. So it's work for them to deal with. I mean, you could break their network, you know, if, if you go so much faster and stuff like that. Now it's a good thing, but it also means they got to deal with that. So it, if you're going to do new, it's a lot of work and it needs to be, you know, three to five times or more better. Otherwise it's not going to be worth it. Yeah, I got a kind of a layman's user level example of that. So I'm in Kansas City and Kansas City was fortunate to be the first city that Google Fiber came and strung our city up with gigabit internet. And everyone was excited because it was just going to give us this gajillion times faster internet, which it did when it was in Google's network and stayed in Google's local network. But the problem was, is once it got outside of that, yeah. Uh, it had a lot of problems because it was and I compared it to the equivalent of like driving down um, a freeway rather than an or a highway rather than an interstate because you'd go 80 miles an hour and then you'd have to stop and go 25 because yeah. the, the other servers and things that, get you know, get and put information back and forth weren't doing it very fast. So you were limited by the rest of the world. And on some levels, that was very disappointing for users here. Uh, and then some things it did really, it, it did, it went really quick. And I think you got a great point about, um, well, uh, you know, like if you want to put a, a 1500 horsepower engine in your car, you're probably going to need a clutch that supports it and, and, <laughs> and new motor mounts and a whole lot of other stuff. You can't just drop that thing in a Honda Civic and hope that the rest of it's going to, going to be, you know, up to stock. Now, um, one, one, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because there's a couple other phases I want to make sure we cover here, but when it comes to the implementation and coding, like, uh, you know, uh, now at my company, fullscale.io, we help, we help companies build teams of experts. So dude, I know how hard it is to find good developers. And now you're talking about like top 1%. Like for, on a general enterprise level, like what can, what's a little advice that you can give people about building a team? Well, building a team, it's all about your pipeline, you know, so you've got to think about the kinds of people you're going to need and where you're going to find them from. And, you know, generally in enterprise software, like any software, there's two types, there's, you know, new grads and we kind of, we refer to them as brilliant young minds um, and they have certain there's certain ways you're going to find them. You know, you're, you're going to have to build a, a college recruiting pipeline. You know, you're going to have to figure out with each school, what are the right events, you know, who are the right, you know, people to be in contact with. Um, you know, we, we've, we, that's been something I've worked on and, and the other, you know, many of the other uh, executives at OCM have also started enterprise software companies. So we've been honing our college recruiting for decades. And, you know, we're at the point now where we, we literally get 10,000 applicants a year. Um, for maybe 20 positions. And these are from, you know, top schools. Um, and we, you know, so we've, we've got a really good process there, but you just got to put the time in, you know, every fall, I mean, a number of your key people are going to be pretty tied up. Um, for mid-career hiring, it's definitely different. And there, you know, you have to rely a lot on personal networks um, and, you know, getting, I mean, look, people are smart. So if you're going to, if you really want to recruit good people, you're not going to fool them. 
I mean, you're going to have to have work that fits for them. I mean, it's like you were saying with a car, you know, you're not going to hire like top person in their school, you know, future Nobel prize winner and have them lay out a web page. I mean, you have to, it has to be work that's commensurate with their skill level. Um, and then of course you, you and, know, and, fu- and future skill level. Right. And, yeah. and they're, the, the moment, they, the moment they get bored, they're applying for jobs somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the compensation has got to make sense to you. You can't, you can't think, yeah, I'm going to pay them sub market cash and no equity. They're not, they're not stupid. <laughs> you know, you, you know, you're not, it, so it's, it, the whole package has to make sense. And that, that matters for both, you know, new grads as well as experienced people. You, you gotta, you gotta, your offer has to be commensurate with their skill level. Yeah, we found the same thing at full scale. So, and we do a lot of that. I, I read bright young minds. I, I have what I call my whiz kids. Because we go out and I mean, we'll blindly hire the top one to 3% if we can. And I know I'm going to pay them for a while to learn how to, on some levels, be adults, yeah. you know, but you pair them up with the best senior people you have and they're sponge like, man, they, and, but uh, you know, it's tough and you got to, and you, like you said, there's the relationships. I just gave a speech last week to the, and I have such a hard time saying this, the Philippine society of information technology educators. Hey, I got it right on the first time I, uh, have a video of me getting that wrong, like seven times in a row. And it was so funny. I let that be the beginning of the speech that I sent over to them. So, um, yeah, uh, but yeah, it's that, it's that pipeline of talent. And the thing we find is get people, you line people up with things that they're okay. The smartest people are care more about what they're passionate about than they do about the paycheck. You give them both. Okay. Makes it a lot easier. Um, pay people what they're worth. Mm-hmm. There you go. And if you are getting ready to explore, a field in that, uh, I recommend that you try to find something to become an expert at it before you're trying to be an expert at six different things. Because be an expert at one thing, you open a lot of other doors for yourself. Okay, so so far we've talked about we're, we're gathering requirements, we're doing some analysis, we did a design. Now we've begun to implement and code stuff. And let's say we are fortunate. Well, first off. Chris, validate this for me. Does anyone really know how long it's going to take to build working software? Not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I needed to hear there because, you know, the, the timeline's usually wrong. And, you know, the idea that you're going to arrive at the dock at the, at the predicted date and hour, you're not. You're not. There's a zillion things that go into it. One of which is the testing process. Mm-hmm. And... I think a lot of people just kind of skimp or just don't really take this part seriously. But what, you know, what are your comments about, okay, now we've, we're beginning to implement and, and code and all that. What, where does testing come in? Well, of course it has to, you have to build test into the design. Like how's how are you going to test? It needs to be a part of the design. The, the other issue that I've, I've, I found with tests and it sounds like you have too, is in the enterprise software world, the, the work of testing is as complex as the work of development. Um, it's a different, and it's a different, different kind of complexity, but you know, a lot of people don't want to do tests because they don't think it's that interesting, but it, it's actually pretty interesting and pretty complex. And, you know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, solving mysteries, uh, is, is a lot of fun. So you, you've got to, you've got to build a, a team, uh, your test team for complex enterprise software is usually about half the size of your dev team. It's, it's, it's a ton of work and it, in hat, you know, you have to, it, it touches every aspect. I mean, at the architecture level, the design level, you know, the, you know, all the way through to, you know, unit acceptance, um, you know, and there's all these different dimensions for testing, you know, performance versus stability versus features. And it's, it's, it's a very significant part of the work of building enterprise software. I'm going to weigh in on a very simplistic level. And if you're building a product, you have one, there's 15 to 20 things in there that if they are broken, you have no business working on anything else until they are not broken. I don't know what they are at your business or at your software. Uh, I mean, I don't care if your enterprise software or something different. These are the things that without proper functionality, your users are not getting their money's worth. And sometimes it is simple as, as looking at something and saying, is this annoying? If 
by the way, Chris, that's rule one for me. When it comes to user experience, you say, is this annoying? And if the answer is maybe or yes, you haven't done a very good job of user experience because you have to think about, and that's where testing is really important. And, you know, I think that, and this is where, you know, people say, well, shouldn't a developer be know, know what to be able to test? On, on a minimal level, but you want to line, you want to build a team. You want to keep your developers developing. You want to keep your testers testing all the way down the, uh, all the way down the road. And also it's about fresh set of eyes. You get so close to this stuff. You don't even realize there's a problem until a real person goes to use it. And they're like, Oh, why can't I put a symbol in here? That isn't just a letter. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. We broke, the, we broke the whole platform with an at sign. Yeah. And yes, that happens like the weirdest shit can happen with that. Okay. So testing's part of the, of the path to deployment. And, you know, like we're still kind of talking about the development cycle here, but if you don't build the product, right, you're not going to build an enterprise company. So when it comes to deployment, I've seen, oh man, compared to 10 years ago, thank you for whoever built repositories and other things that prevented overriding and uh, God, so many other things and added some accountability. When it comes to deployment, you hear things like DevOps and other stuff, they're real hot terms and real hot fields that have specialists. Like what's your, what's your advice when it comes to deploying what you've built? Advice to a, a, a enterprise software company or a customer of an enterprise yeah, software company? Yeah, how do we make how do we make that a part of building the company so it's not something that we fear like Godzilla running down the street? Yeah, I, I guess what I would say there is you got to think about what's your definition of done, and our definition of done has always been the customer is realizing the benefits they intended to realize. You know, meaning they've not only, you know, not only did it pass through our release process and we sold it and we, it got installed, but now they're realizing the benefits. They're actually saving money or they're actually growing their business or they're actually, you know, reducing costs. Whatever, whatever it is they had in mind, when that's happening, you're done. And, um, and, and, and therefore it'll pick up you know, those deployment issues and DevOps issues and test issues and whatever. Because if, if you're realizing that, that's the grade card. It doesn't matter if I think it's great or the developer thinks it's great or who, it doesn't matter. It's like, we're not the judges. The judge is the customer and the customer will judge based on them re realizing the benefits because that's why they're buying it. So by making that the finish line and, you know, the whole team has to understand this is the, when you're done. This is when we get to celebrate. We're not going to have a launch party. We're going to have a customer deployed successfully party, but we're not going to have a launch party because that's not the definition of done. And if you're going to build an enterprise company, you're going to have to make a lot of sales. People buy benefits, not features. That might be the thousandth time I've said this on this podcast, but it is so true. Wrap your arms around that because you know, we didn't, we've talked more about kind of building the product and planning for it and all that, because without that and having a successful product, well, if you don't have anything to sell, then you're not going to, none of it's going to happen, but you got to remember and much, you know, much like you said, if the customer, the user, the, it, it, whoever's the receiving, who receives the benefit, are they getting what they want? I thought you put that quite well. Uh, what's the definition of done? Um, I, uh, I am an anti gold plater, meaning like I've seen people basically put gold plating on everything they build and deploy and it not, it, and most, if not all of it does not require that. All right. So now we deployed a product. We've got stuff out there. The last step in that dev cycle is usually maintenance. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on that, but I think it would be good to hear from you how you maintain products and keep the status quo and the future in mind when it comes to your company. Cause these things can get a little complex, uh, be as complex as building new stuff, especially when you're stacking the new stuff on the old stuff. Yeah. I, I guess the, the phrase that we use a lot that uh, captures the thinking here is that most of these things are a journey, not a destination. So if you say, did you make a product that was fast? Well, fast is not 
a journey, a destination. It'll always go faster and be fast in new ways. And so you got to think about the, the delivery is not this point in time, this release went you know, this fast or had these features or whatever. Basically, you're going to have a relationship with your customers where over a period of time and hopefully a long period of time, you're going to deliver an ever increasing bag of benefits and capabilities. And that's, that's how you have to think of it. And one of the, I think one of the benefits of the servicization of software, I mean, it used to be, you know, you would sell primarily, you would just sell a, a release and they would own it, the, the customer and enterprise software more and more, whether it's deployed as a service or you're selling a subscription, even though there's a bunch of releases in that subscription, it's this relationship over time. And that's a much better way to think of it. Um, because that's really what customers want. Their needs are ever changing. So for example, in some of the markets we're in like ad tech and FinTech and network metadata, the amount of data that customers have to analyze at least doubles every year. And in, in many cases in those markets, the amount of data each year is greater than all prior years. And that's been happening for several years. So that's their world. So when they want benefits like performance, they don't just want on this day, you know, March 1st, 2021, it was fast. Like, no, what they want is every day for the next thousand days, it's fast. And what's happening during those thousand days is the scale at which they're operating is doubling. And then there's this new line of business they have to support in their organization, which means all these new capabilities have to be fast. And all these things are evolving and growing for them. So that, so it's, it, I guess that's, what I mean by, you know, saying it's these things are a journey, not a destination. That's ultimately what you're delivering to your customers is a great journey. So I end my episodes of Startup also with what we call the Founders Freestyle. And we're going to, I say my episodes because I'm not the only host of Startup Hustle. Make sure you tune in on Tuesdays with Andrew Morgans. Learn all about how to sell stuff on Amazon and the world of e-commerce. And on Thursdays, join Innovate Her Founder. Lauren Conaway, who also talks about many, many things that I think you'll find useful. Now, I mentioned that I end my episodes of Startup Puzzle with the Founders Freestyle. Now, when it comes to founders, Silicon Valley Bank has been supporting innovative founders, companies, and investors with targeted financial services and expertise. 35 years, man. They've been doing it for a while. It's a good place to go visit at svb.com. Now, I mentioned all of the stuff related to startup hustle make sure you go over to youtube check out the new web series we launched where we are giving you a look at what it's like to be an entrepreneur through the lens of the entrepreneur people keep asking me when startup hustle tv is going to get picked up by netflix i don't know it's been out for a month if you're from netflix call me we'll talk about it i probably still won't sign the deal though because i am not employable chris now, <laughs> speaking of the freestyle, uh, you, dude, you've done so much stuff. Like, and, and congrats on all that. Congrats on the success that Ocean's found. There's a link for that in the show notes if you want to learn more about it. I'd really like, you know, I, I mentioned the freestyle is the freestyle, man. You can say whatever you want, but I, I think our our listeners would really like to hear some advice about what you've learned across the successful journey of multiple companies. Like what's the best advice you can give when it comes to the, the very broad topic of building an enterprise software company? Well, I'll, I'll give you two quick answers. So the first is the best advice. And um, the, the, what the number one thing that causes new companies in general and enterprise software companies in particular to fail is that they don't last long enough. You know, we were joking earlier about you can never really know how long it's going to take, but you usually are, well, you're always thinking it's going to take less time than it actually does. You never overestimate the time. Uh, you always underestimate. And so almost always people are right about what they're building, you know, that it is valuable and people will want it but they always underestimate how long it will take to build it and sell it and scale it. And so the number one thing you got to think about is how do I last long enough to realize the success? Um, you know, the second thing I'll say just briefly is I having sold a lot of 
mission critical, like national security enabling trillion dollar market cap building kind of enterprise software systems. You know, I, we always go back and ask the customer when they buy, why did they buy? And what you find in enterprise software is the reason they buy, particularly from a new company is because of the people, you know, that make it. And they know that what you're selling them in version, whatever, isn't quite done and it's got some issues and you're going to add some things. They know that. What they're really wanting to buy is a team of people that are going to make it work. And, and at the end of the day, that's it. So, you, 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 you know, I was saying earlier, like, you know, smart employees are smart. You're not going to fool them and not pay them enough and expect they're going to take the job. Well, let me tell you, these customers are smart, too. And so they know that it's all about the people. Like, you know, in the middle of the night when something goes wrong, is your team, you know, motivated enough, good enough to get that thing fixed right away? And so, that, you know, it. I guess that's the other thing is what you really got to build in enterprise software companies is this unbelievable team of people. And that, that is the whole business. You know, the one thing, and, and I, and I shall freestyle, uh, the reason software ha trades at such an insane or software companies uh, trade at such an insane valuation is that software shows up to work every day, but you need people to build it. And I think you, hit the nail on the head. I early in my life as an entrepreneur, I uh, didn't value having the very best. And now I'm all about it. And I think that that's a key, especially if you want to build something big, how are you going to be the best without having the best people on your team? I really enjoyed your take. I got, I usually don't take a ton of notes. I got a whole page of them. Um, but you know, I think the idea that a journey it's, it, all this is a journey and not a destination. You're never really done. You never will be done. If you're telling yourself when this is done, you, well, you're, you probably don't have much experience building software. Um, I liked the points about not redoing stuff unless it's three to five times better. I think that that's a rabbit hole that a lot of people fall down, um, and, you know, they get so concerned with the elegance of the code that might not even matter. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about this on the show, meaning like if your solution is just a little bit better than the competition, you're going to find yourself really disappointed that people didn't walk across the street. Why? Because changing stuff out at your business, if you don't have to, is a pain in the ass. That's why, I mean, I've seen large scale businesses deal with crappy systems for a decade because that was actually a better answer than trying to roll out something that nobody in the company knew how to use. Um, you know, and I mean, overall, like there, there's a lot to be had from this episode. I, I Chris, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations on uh, everything you're doing over at OCN. Click the link in the show notes. I'm going to let Chris get back to solving tomorrow's problems. I'll see you next time, man. Thanks. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. Like we do it.